Father, take your word and bury it deep in our hearts, in our souls, in our minds. Father, fill us with your Holy Spirit that we would be enthralled with you. Lord Jesus, you are worthy to be praised. You are worthy to be sung about, to be thought of, to be sought after. Father, empower the preaching of your word to cause our hearts to love you more. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may think it's strange, but every time that I'm preparing a sermon, either writing it, breaking it up to preach on my iPad, or when I walk up here and stand behind this pulpit, every time I have you in mind, and at the same time I have one overarching goal that drives my thoughts, my desires, And that is the desire to dig into the Word of God and then to take the riches that I have received and to distribute them to you. And that desire is to see Jesus, to bring glory to Him. The reason for this is that I have found that there is nothing in this life as impacting, as seeing Jesus. This has been the case for the last 2,000 years. And as we'll see today, seeing Christ is seeing the Father. At this point in the life of Christ, he has told his disciples that his time has not yet come. A statement that those around him didn't understand. And his time that time that they didn't understand would be revealed by a simple request. And we're told what that request was. In John 12, 20 and 21, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. It was after Jesus was told of this request that for the first time, he said, my hour is at hand. Seeing Jesus, this is the clarion call for all who have been born again, for all that have been bought by the propitiation of Jesus, to see him, to know him, to really know him, not just in a passing casual way, but intimately. Oswald Chambers once wrote, Being saved and seeing Jesus are not the same thing. Many people have never seen Jesus that have received a share in God's grace. But once you have seen him, you can never be the same. Other things will not have the appeal that they did before. My goal 
my desire in life is for us, all of us, to see Jesus. My desire in life is to see Jesus, to see his glory, to know him as he is, and to have the reality of his life, the life that is found only in and through him, to actually know that life. And I desire this for you as well. I would that each of you would become fixated on seeing Jesus, that you would become addicted to him. We've all heard stories about how people have ruined their lives through addiction to things, crack, heroin, gambling, sex, how they'll trade every relationship that they have, spend their last dime on that addiction, and would even then still crave that addiction to the point that they will lie, cheat, steal, and completely ruin themselves for it. This is how I would that you would desire Christ. How I would desire Christ. Not casually, not comfortably, and not secondarily, but to be so enthralled with him that we would be like Stephen. In the book of Acts chapter 7, we're told the first of the Christian martyrs, a man named Stephen, who had gotten himself in trouble with the religious establishment and was being questioned by them. And after a historical lesson on how they had always been against God, he summarized it all up in verses 51 through 54. He said, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in hearts and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. And when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And after falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold these sins against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Did you hear what he saw when he was gazing into heaven? What it was that made everything that was going on around him of no account? He saw the glory of God. And he saw Jesus. We'll see in our verses today the separation between being in the presence of Jesus and knowing Jesus. The difference between being religious and knowing God. And the deadly consequences of anything less than being enthralled with Jesus. Verses 14 and 15. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews, therefore, marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? 
This was the Feast of Tabernacles that Jesus was teaching at, a feast that had been commanded by God to be held annually for seven days, a feast in recognition of the divine provision given by God through the Exodus period, but a feast that had been hijacked by cultural relevance and traditions of men, so much so that it's described in verse 2 of this chapter as the Jews' feast of booze. And our section of scripture began by revealing that even the brothers of Jesus didn't believe in him, and in fact were openly mocking him about this feast. They could tell that he, unlike them, was not preparing to go to the feast. And they thought that he was either a coward or a fake because of it. But he was neither. He would not go up to their feast, a feast that was honoring men, that was all about men's felt needs, that had been made to look forward to a false Messiah and a false salvation. He wouldn't go up to their feast, but he did go up to the feast. And in the midst of the feast, in the middle of the holy days, he shows up. He goes into the temple and begins teaching. The temple was ground zero for all scholastic-minded men. All the major doctors of theology would have been there, especially in the midst of this feast. And it was these men that asked Jesus the question of verse 15. And they weren't actually challenging what Jesus was saying. What they were challenging were the credentials that he didn't have. It didn't matter to them if what he was saying was doctrinally correct or not. They wanted to know what letters or titles did he have behind his name. There are some today, like them, that hold that if you have not gone to seminary, you should not and cannot be a pastor. I'll acknowledge that those that are shepherds of God's flock should be and need to be trained and qualified. But we need to be careful, even specific about how we mean by that. Because I hold that only a church can train and qualify a man to be an elder. Seminary, college education, historical teachings are great and are useful for some things. But having said that, a seminary cannot and does not qualify a man to be a pastor. Knowing Greek and Hebrew, do not a pastor make. But these men held the same kind of thinking concerning Jesus. Some of them had probably been in that same temple years before when a much younger version of this Jesus had strolled in among them. When he was around 12, and after his folks and family had left Jerusalem, he stayed behind. We're told in Luke 2, 46 and 47, after uh, three days they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Now, that boy had returned as a man and stood not listening and asking questions, but teaching the masses and even the professors as well. And the question that they had was not about his teaching. It was, how dare he teach? Where are his credentials? We have spent a greater part of our lives in school 
learning and being taught. We have credentials. We have an MBA, an MDiv. We have degrees, awards. These prove why you should listen to us. Where are your credentials, Jesus? Did you sit under Gamaliel or one of the other rabbinic traditions? Which rabbi were you a disciple of? Where did you get your learning? Verses 16 through 18. So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from me, is from God, or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. In other words, what Jesus said is his teaching, his doctrine was not his, but came from an outside source. His answer to these men is important. Not only important in our verses today, but it's important in our life, in understanding who Jesus is, in seeing who Jesus is. If I were to ask you, where did Jesus get his knowledge? The knowledge that he displayed in his teaching, the knowledge that he claimed was truth, the knowledge that proclaimed that was proclaimed as the light of the world, where did he get this? Many of you might say that it was his because he's God. But following this logic, Jesus would never have had to sit under teaching, never needed to go to school. After all, he is the source and the fountain of all knowledge. But let me ask you a follow-up question then. When Jesus was lying in that manger when he was a baby, did he know the world was round? That there are nine planets in our solar system? Yes, I still count Pluto as a planet. This is fundamental for seeing Jesus for who he is. See, there's this little verse at the end of Luke 2, verse 52. It says, And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Jesus learned. The human nature of Jesus did not come equipped with the divine attribute of omniscience. If we allow ourselves to think that the human nature of Jesus possessed human characteristics, then we're not seeing Jesus for who he is. And we are, in fact, worshiping a heretical, false Jesus. We must remember, recognize, and embrace the humanity of Christ. If we do not, then the entire account of Luke 4 is no value. If when Jesus was sent into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, if he was then in complete possession of his divine nature and attributes, then what's the big deal of him not eating for 40 days? What's the big deal of Satan telling him to command a stone to become bread, of being offered all the kingdoms of the world? Where would the temptation be then? How could he have been tempted in every way as we have been without sin? Hebrews 4.15 We would have to tear that page of the Bible out. In fact, we'd have to rip the entire book of Hebrews out of the Bible. And while we were at it, we'd have to jettison the entire Christian faith as a fake and a fraud. 
And then there's this account of Mark 13. When the disciples asked Jesus about the signs of the end of the age, he finished that section by saying in verse 32, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. In this one response, he has clearly put a limit on his knowledge. Do you find this troubling? Baffling? Don't feel alone. The greatest minds throughout church history have struggled with this problem. Even Thomas Aquinas, one of the greatest theologians the church has ever known, got this one wrong. He said that Jesus had to know the day and the hour. After all, he was God incarnate. He healed. He raised people from the dead. He knew people's thoughts. He had to know. So Aquinas, Aquinas developed what he called the accommodation theory. In essence, he said that Jesus did know the day and an hour, but that knowledge was too holy and too wonderful to reveal or even to talk about. And so Jesus told his disciples that he just simply didn't know. As nice as this is, if Jesus knew and said that he didn't, he lied. Instead of trying to make the hard easy, let us just take Jesus at his word and believe that there were things that he in his mortal body did not know. In doing so, we align ourselves with the scriptures and the orthodox understanding that Jesus was vero homo, vero deus, truly man and truly God. One person with two separate and yet whole natures we have to grasp that his divine nature had all the attributes of deity and that his human nature had all the limitations of humanity, but without sin. And we can distinguish these two natures, but we can't separate them. His human nature was that that got hungry or tired or perspired. But what about Jesus telling Nathaniel and John one before he met him that he knew him what about him telling the woman at the well about her husband and the man that she was living with how did he know these things these were instances of the divine nature of christ communicating with the human nature of christ there were things that jesus did not know but and this is the big but whatever jesus did know Everything that he taught was impeccable, infallible. He never taught based upon human insight or feelings. He always taught from his divine inspiration. If this were not the case, then the debate, then the debate over solar scriptura would have been ended long ago. If everything that Jesus taught were not absolute truth, from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21, then we could not know truth but this is not the case we know that everything that jesus taught was infallible it was perfect truth and we know this because his life proved it so when the G the jewish leaders asked jesus where he got his degree from where he'd obtained his credentials he simply told them the truth i brought him from home 
I got them from my father. If you want truth, absolute truth, and nothing but the truth, come to me. Look to me. I am truth. Jesus then uses his truth to show them just how far they were from the truth. Verses 19 and 20. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? He points to the very law that they hold as truth and then tells them that they do not know the law. And even worse, that they don't keep the law. This is the evidence that they don't know it. If you've ever engaged in a heated discussion with someone and had them trying to figure out exactly where they stood on a subject, and then after a comment that you make, they just go off, this is a really good indicator that you have found the soft underbelly of their false golden calf. It was this way for these Jewish men. The religious professionals that were challenged by this uneducated bastard child of a carpenter, all he had to do is tell them that while they had the law, they did not know it, and that none of them keep it. And bam, fireworks go off. In verses 21 through 24, Jesus then goes on to show them just how far they were from the truth. Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it's from Moses, but it's from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a whole man's body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. It's a sad truth that Christianity has fallen on hard times, mainly because most Christians are uneducated in theology. And truthfully, most people are just plain uneducated. What Jesus is doing here is using a form of philosophical argument called ad hominem. Not in the abusive sense, but in the logical sense. He took their argument against him in doing a single work and healing a man on the Sabbath as being against the law and took it to its logical conclusion. We're told in Leviticus 12.3 that it was not Moses that gave the law of circumcision. That came from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But we are told in Leviticus 12.3 that every male child must be circumcised on the eighth day even if that day fell on the Sabbath. And yes, circumcision was most uh, definitely one of those works that would have been prohibited on the Sabbath. But nevertheless, the Jews would circumcise on the eighth day, even if it fell on the Sabbath. This was the ad hominem argument that Jesus made. If circumcision is permissible on the Sabbath, because it's the sign given to you that you are part of the family of God, that you're well with him, then why would healing that same man who had been given that same sign, 
why would healing his entire body on the Sabbath be against the law? You know the letter of the law, but you don't know the heart of the law. You know the law of God, but you don't know the God of the law. And the leaders had nothing to say in response, which revealed a rift within the group that was gathered there. Verses 25 and 26. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? The fact that these leaders did not pounce on this opportunity to arrest and silence Jesus caused some within the gathered group to question not only their authority, but his as well. Saints, before we move on, please hear me on this and learn a lesson from these religious leaders. They had a conviction. They were convinced that Jesus was a fake and a fraud, that his teaching was heretical and not sound. And yet, because of the crowd there, because they were afraid of public opinion, afraid that the stance that they held, the conviction that they held, would be unpopular, they didn't act. They could talk a good game, but they were afraid to follow up with actions. And the result was that those around them, even the very people who they were supposed to be leading and teaching, didn't believe what these men said. The same is true in our lives. We can make a claim, state something as true until we're blue in the face, but if we're not willing to act on these statements, if we are afraid of public opinion because of the things that we hold to be true, but those around us, even those that we're supposed to be in authority over, will not believe us. You've heard people say of others, they're all show and no go. They're all bark and no bite. What's being said of them is they lack conviction. Let us examine ourselves, our own lives, and determine where in them we're falling into this trap. What conviction do we hold that it, we know, if it were made public, would be unpopular? Is it our stance on abortion? And so we just call ourselves pro-life? Our stance on reformed doctrine? And so we'll just go along with what everybody else thinks is okay? Our stance on homosexuality? And so we just openly welcome any and all, because what can you do? And listen in verse 27. How the people, the rabble, the huddled masses in one instant have gone from listening to and respecting these learned men to questioning even their basic understanding of God. They say in verse 27, But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. What they're saying is, could it be that Jesus now has convinced our religious leaders, the high priest, 
the legal scholars that he's the Messiah? They might be fooled, taken in by this guy, but even we know that when the Christ comes, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know, for I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. The manner in which verse 28 begins is given us to draw attention to the fact that as this huddled group was talking trash about this man, at that very moment, this man proclaims publicly the answer to the very question that they have been asking in secret when he makes the statement that is the bedrock of truth. These folks who had grown up their entire lives thinking that they knew God, men and women who were secure within their own minds that they were in the family of God, that they were safe under the covenant, that because of their national heritage, their ethnicity, and the works that they performed, that they were good and that they knew God and they were assured to get into heaven. He first begins by answering the challenge of his credentials. Yes, they knew him. Yes, they knew where he had been born and where he came from. But his teaching was not his own. He had been taught. And he had been sent by the one who taught him. And it was this one that he knew intimately more than any other man. And it was this one that he tells them that they did not know. The God that they think that they know. The one that they are so comfortable with that they can change his feast and that they can come to his feast with hearts filled with malice and hatred. It was this God that they didn't know. And they could never know outside of this man who was standing before them. The man that they think that they know. This truth is at the core of why I desire you to see Jesus. And not just to see him from afar. Know him as a friend on Facebook. But to really see him. To really know him to be intimately acquainted with him. Because outside of him, you cannot know the Father. Outside of him, you were like these people, aliens and enemies of this God. No matter how many religious duties you perform, no matter how much quiet time you have, no matter how many times you walk an aisle, raise your hand or look at that man before you. If you do not know Jesus, do not know him as your savior and only hope, then you don't know the one who sent him and you never will outside of him. And look back at verse 18. As to the one thing that Jesus tells us is the reason that he came. The one thing Verse 18, the one who speaks of his own authority seeks his own glory. 
But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. The Jews with which Jesus was speaking probably missed this. You may have missed it as well. Was the reconciliation of people the main reason that Jesus came to earth? Does he say that he came to make your pitiful existence here better? Was this the reason that he tells these folks that he was sent? Did he say that his main driver in his life was to correct bad theology, to bring about social justice, to provide a way for you to have your best life now? There's only one thing that he says that he is seeking, and none of these things is that one thing. That one thing is the glory of him who sent him. And for this reason, everything that is that he says is truth, and in him there is no falsehood, which means that you never have to worry about being disappointed by Jesus. He is the yes and amen of God. And if we are ever to know the one that was sent by the one who sent him, then we too must be seeking the same thing that he did, the glory of him who sent him. Well, what's that? What does the glory of him who sent him look like, feel like? It sounds like one of those touchy feeling things that is being propagated by practitioners of falsehood, like getting in touch with your inner you, meeting your inner child, bringing the power of crystals into your life, dabbing yourself with essential oils, that way you can be healed. What is this glory that Jesus is seeking, was seeking? What is this glory that seemed to be at the center of his teaching? What is this glory that I keep talking about, keep telling you that I desire you to see? Glory is the manifestation of God's being, nature, and presence revealed in a manner accessible to human experience. It's experiencing the reality of the God of the not yet, here in the now. How many of us have had this happen to us? How many of us have seen God, heard God, communed with God here in this realm? This is seeing the glory of God. And once we do, our hearts, our lives, our very being will reflect it. This is the one thing that drove Jesus. And it was the reality that they had never seen this God, never experienced this God, and were not really even seeking the glory of this God that Jesus says is the one that he came from, the one that sent him, and the one that they didn't know. Their actions proved it. Instead of being cut to the core, by the reality of this statement that they didn't know God, instead of being devastated by the truth that they did not know God, they proved that they didn't know him by doing 
that which their nature of their father would do. Verse 30. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Once again, the sovereign power of God is displayed. The desire that they had to arrest him was real. It wasn't just his background kind of thing. Jesus wasn't just an annoyance, like a squeaky door that someday you mean to oil, but you just keep forgetting to do it. The hatred for him was at the forefront of their very being. He was public enemy number one. And yet, even though they sought to arrest him, desired to get rid of him, and wanted to kill him, no one laid a hand on him. This reality is a mind-bender. Here, here stood this man who just said that he was from the one who he sought to bring glory to. This one had sent him, and he knew this one. And this man who stood before them, that challenged them with their false religion, and who challenged them with himself, it was he whose own actions and truths that were the catalyst for their hatred and desire to kill him. And yet at the same time, it was he who was preventing them from acting on the very emotions that he was causing. His hour had not yet come. There would be an hour that he would set them free to do all the evil that they desired. There would be a day that they would arrest him, mock him, torture him, kill him. There would be a day that he would not stay the hand, and they would finally have what they desired. A day that they would finally be rid of this man. A day that they would do all that the Father's hand had planned and predestined to take place. A day that those that had begin, had been given to him by his Father would finally come into the presence of his glory. Would for the first time truly see his glory. And our verses end today with just a foretaste of this coming truth. Yet many of the people believed in him when they said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? However, even here we see how lacking these people were in their belief of Christ. Many of them believed because of the outward signs that Jesus had done. But even those who had seen these things, those who believed because of the signs, they were holding up these very signs as the litmus test for Jesus. We think that this man could be the Messiah. He does these signs that no mere mortal could do. But shouldn't he be doing more signs? Shouldn't signs and wonders just drop from him like rain from the sky or like dust from a dirt road? This is the reality of those that have not seen the glory of God. They must seek signs, reassurances that the person that they believe in is God really is God. Otherwise, they can all too often be persuaded that he's not. But if you are his, then Christ has appeared, and he has done a far more greater sign than any of these people could ever have imagined. 
Saints, I beseech you, seek the glory of him who was sent. The glory of the only true God. I implore you, do not be satisfied with the things of God, with the trappings of this world. Seek the glory of Christ. Pray for it like it's the last hope that you have. Desire it like a starving man desires food, like a dehydrated man desires water, like a parent that's looking for a lost child. In order to know the Father, you have to know the Son, the Son in whom there is no falsehood, the Son that had you on his mind and in his heart when he went to the cross to make propitiation for you, to bring you back into relationship with his Father, to make you a son of light, a co-heir with him in the eternal kingdom of God, all done to bring glory to his Father, the same glory that is his, and the same glory that he has given to us.